Father, today I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can learn from it, that we can be challenged by it, that we can be grown by it. I thank you, especially thinking about what we're going to talk about, that you use it in our lives and that this time that we spend together, gathered together, worshiping and adoring you, that it's not something that's just wasted. That it's something that you're feeding into us and that you're working in us through your word. It's as good as our three squares a day. The clothes on our back. It's, it's a necessity for us, Father, and I thank you for it. I pray that you would keep me from doing any disservice to it, that you would give me words to speak clearly and honestly about it. I pray, Father, that as we move through, that your word would sink deeply into our hearts and transform us to the people that you'd have us to be. So all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in John chapter 15 again today. We're going to finish up our little series around Jesus' teaching on the vineyard. Um, we started this a couple of weeks ago, and, and as we started into it, you know, we, we have dealt with a couple of different things. Just to, just to bring some clarity and make sure that everybody's on the same page, we'll review that a little bit this morning. Um, first, The first week we get into it, we're, we're looking at the characters that are revealed there, the characters that that Jesus shows us in this teaching. And the first one we see is, is that Jesus is the true vine. <clears throat> now, based on some conversations that I've had and, and some things that have been said, I want to make sure that at least my, my perspective is clear. Um, I, I truly believe that, that Jesus here is, is saying that basically he is all that Israel never was. Israel was ca- called the vine in the Old Testament. He was, or, or, or they were, um, um, Refer to that many, many times, and, and actually, as as it turns out in the prophets, over and over they were said to be a, a, a failing vine. They were not producing fruit. They were they were infested with with all these bad things. And so, so what we see Jesus saying is, as comparison to to them, he says, "I'm the true vine. I'm the real deal. I'm I'm all that that they were meant to be." And maybe, in a sense, he's a replacement for Israel. Not that Israel was ever intended to be a salvation for the world or that they could have ever provided salvation in and of themselves, but that salvation would come to the world through them. And so what Israel could not do, God brought out of Israel and did through them. And so I think that's what Jesus is referring to there. And then he talks about the Father. And and let me say this. I've teased about, well, you can be wrong and, and all of that the last few weeks if you don't agree with me. I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be rude or mean or anything like that. I'm, I'm joking. I would challenge you to study these views. Don't accept my word for it. Don't, don't, oh, well, I heard Seth say it, so that's what I'm going to think. He studied it. Now, study it. Study it yourself. Dig on it. Look at it. Look at the different views that are out there and, 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 and strive to understand it. The second person we saw was the father as the vine dresser. The vine dresser tends to the vine. He tends to the branches. He, he looks at the branches and he sees fruit or he doesn't see fruit. And if he sees fruit, he prunes. He, he, he makes these branches. He tends to them. He makes them more fruitful. He does for them what is necessary that, that they continue doing what they were always intended to do. And then in, in, in the branches that he sees that aren't fruitful, he takes them away. He, he throws them into the fire eventually. He prunes them. Essentially, he prunes them off the vine, cleansing the vine and making it pure and making it able to do all that it was intended to do. And then thirdly, we see the branches. And the branches, there's, this is probably the most controversial point in all of this teaching. I'm not going to go over the different views again. I, I'm not going to rehearse them all for you again. And I'm not going to tell you 
that you have to agree with me again, although you can if you want. I would challenge you again to study these views. There's, there's multiples of them. If you want to hear the main different views, go back. These recordings are on the internet. You can listen to them. You can hear them and you can hear the different views. Ultimately, from my perspective, what I think these branches demonstrate first and foremost is that Christ is referring to his disciples as they appear among Israel. I think that's the first and foremost easiest understanding of what's going on. That, that in Israel, in, inside of Israel, there are many, many people that appear to be people that belong to God. By all appearances, you would think that. There's, there's people who have their self-righteousness, who have their works, who Jesus Christ actually looked in the face and said, you're whitewashed tombs. I think that's the first and foremost understanding of, of who these branches might be. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, but you have been cleansed and you will be pruned and you're going to bear fruit. And, and so if, if we stop and we say that all that the vineyard ever was meant to be was Israel, I think we miss the point. Because Jesus isn't just speaking in a tense of present or past, but he's speaking in this way that, that continues on, that, that is ongoing. And so I think we have to look forward and understand that not only is he talking about what Israel was, I think he's talking about the true Israel who begins to be seen in this age as the church. You see, what, what Israel was, was God's chosen people in that time, and he chose them for a specific purpose and, and to use them for, for, for specific things. And Paul teaches us in Romans that just because they were born of that, just because they were in that line, just because they, they have that ancestry did not make them the true Israel. And so we have to begin to understand that, that God is not looking at outward appearances. He's looking at his people, and in those people, he is working his good works. And so as we look at it in this sense, we begin to recognize that the church comes out of that. The church it, it kind of replaces that. And, and here we have what Jesus is continuing to refer to. His disciples will be known because they will have his fruit. Everyone else is a sham. Everyone else is a fake, just like Judas, just like the Pharisees. They're fakes. They're frauds. They look like it on the outside, but on the inside they are dead. And so we, we, we have to see that this is, this is beginning to be the replacement in what God is doing, continuing to do his work in the redemption of his people, and now he's bringing about the, the, the visible church, the true Israel. And so I think that this is truly who he's referring to. And so inside the church, we're going to have those branches that look like real branches, but they're not going to produce any fruit. And they're going to be pulled off, and God's going to get rid of them eventually. They're going to be brought, they're going to be taken away. And, and the language he uses is that they're going to be burned. And then we have those branches that he works in that, that, that have this life-giving connection to the, to the vine and, and, and he brings fruit and, and then he begins to work in them that he continues or that they continue to bear fruit. And that's the believers. That's the people who truly belong to God. In those people that he works, they bear fruit and he works so that they continue to bear fruit. That's the three characters or the characters that we see demonstrated in this passage. In addition, last week we talked about what that fruit is. We talked about that the fruit is more than just the outward works that, that we see in our lives. In fact, the outward works that we see in our lives are probably the last thing that we need to look at for evidence of who God is or what he might be doing in our life. Please don't hear me saying, and, and I thought about this afterwards, I, I don't ever want to be heard saying that the outward works that you are doing, the, the good things that you're doing would not be fruit. Please don't misunderstand me saying that. 
What I think we see in this passage, though, what I think that, that, that Christ is demonstrating in this passage is that the things that God does in you, those inward works, that that fruit is His supernatural work in you. And as that happens in you, those supernatural works, they take hold in your life as He gives you this love to love with and this peace to experience and this joy that's going to just bubble up out of you, then, then the outward things of your life are going to change. The things that you appreciate, the things that you enjoy doing, the things that entertain you, the things... You know, before I was a Christian, I couldn't stand reading the Bible. I didn't want anything to do with it. But as I've become a believer and I've seen the power of God's Word in my life, I, I want it so badly now. That's the change of God in us. Let me use this as an example. Paul referred to the Philippians. He was thanking them for a gift that he received. And he refers to that gift that he that they gave to him to support his fruit. He refers to that gift as fruit. So we know that that uh, that that these outward works can be considered fruit, but they are only considered fruit in so much as they come from or are motivated by those workings of God within us. We love people, or, or we have God's love in us, so we love people. We have God's peace in us, so instead of being worked up and angry and just throwing around bad stuff every time we get in a tight spot, we live in His peace. Those are the things that He does in us, and they make their way outside of us. So please, don't hear me saying that that, that result, that that work in us doesn't, doesn't show itself on the outside. I think it's just that they, the outward works that we have can be very misleading. That fruit... The definition for us is, is that it is the supernatural work of God in us. Not something that we can do ourselves. Not something that we can work up on our own. Not some, some process that we can follow. It is His work in us. It's a result of knowing Him. And He does it. He makes it happen. That's fruit. Now, we're kind of back to where we finished that last week. And we finished with a question. Oh, let me say this one last thing, just to just to kind of spin it and make something give, give a little weight to this. Fruit is the difference in the branches. You remember that? The fruitful branches are pruned, and they're made more fruitful. The branches that don't produce fruit are taken away and thrown into the fire. So it's imperative in our lives that we see fruit. If we don't see fruit we better be wondering what's going on. If we don't see God's work in us in a growing way, you need to be concerned. It is extremely important because God bears fruit in His people. That's the promise of this passage. And so we ended with a question. There were several questions that, that guided our week last week, but we ended with one question that we didn't answer completely. If this is so important, if, if, if it is so imperative that I see fruit in my life, how is it that I can have fruit? That's the question we ended up with. And the answer is by abiding in Christ. And that's our focus today. How do we abide in Christ? What does it mean to abide in Christ? So turn with me if you've got your Bibles. John 15. We're actually going to read verses 1 through 14. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. 
Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but over and over and over, there's one word that he used over and over and over. Abide, abide, abide. Abiding, it's the difference between fruitful branches and unfruitful branches. It's the path by which God, He, he works our fruitfulness. You see, a, a branch that doesn't abide, it doesn't bear fruit. A branch that abides, it, it, it receives this life-giving nutrients from the vine who is Jesus Christ. It, it receives this life from Him. And, and the Father who takes that branch and sees that life in it and sees the, the beginnings of fruit, He prunes it that it, may be, that it would become more fruitful. You see, abiding, it truly is what separates the branches. Because there's the branch that's truly connected, that has that deep connection. And then those branches that only appear to be connected, that only appear to be real. Verses 2 and 3 show us how both of these things occur in in that uh, first... Well, let me just read them to you again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes... I mean, obviously, we can see the drastic difference. One branch is taken away, one branch is pruned. But you know what's amazing is, is not only do we see this, this, this beginning, he, he, we see him be doing this work, but we see it as a result of what's already begun in us. Let me read this to you in verses 2 and 3. All, or every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already... You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now he's talking to his disciples. He's telling his disciples, hey, there's a continuing work of God that that is a result of what's already happened in you. Ultimately, he says to them, he says, hey, I have cleansed you with the word I've spoken to you. I have purged you. I I have made you clean. And now there's this continuing work of God. He didn't just save us to be saved and figure out the rest on our own. He saved us and we are His and He continues to do this work constantly in our lives. It, it, it's as if, <clears throat> it's as if once you're saved, in fact I would say that this whole passage, this whole passage in John chapter 15 is a, is a picture of the continuing work of the gospel. It's a picture of what God has done in us to save us and a picture of what God is doing to continue to bear Himself out in us. A process of sanctification, of cleansing us and making us more into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, this is what that picture is. 
We have become clean because of what Jesus Christ did, because of our connection to Him. And we are continuing to be cleaned by the work of God the Father in our lives. In fact, both of these words, when he says that, that, that branches are pruned, and then that branches, that, that, that you have already been cleaned because of the word I've spoken to you, the word clean and pruned are essentially the same word. They're different words in the Greek, but, but one comes out of the other. They're related. He's, he's using the same language to demonstrate this truth. What I've done in you cleans you. It made you ready. It saved you. And what God is going to do is continue to work in you and continue to shape you and mold you that you may bear much fruit. It's a continuing work of the gospel in our lives. These disciples, you know, they had that connection. They knew that they were going to continue to be cleansed. And immediately, immediately, verse 4, Jesus says this, Abide in me. He gives this to them as a command. It's not something that, hey, don't choose this. Don't, 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 don't maybe do this. Do this. Abide in me. It's the difference between being a fruitful branch and being an unfruitful branch. And you know what? Abiding is to be our focus. Or, or it's to be the focus of our effort. So often, so often we come to this passage and we want to say, oh, i got to go bear fruit. i got to go bear fruit. And so we get up and we run and we try to do all these things to impress God. And we do all these things to make ourselves look good and to try and bear fruit. And we focus on bearing fruit. Jesus didn't say go bear fruit. What did He say? Abide in Me. You see, that's to be the focus of our effort. I, I, we were created to bear fruit. We talked about that last week. We touched on it last week that even before the fall of man, God was telling Adam and Eve, go be fruitful, multiply in number, cover the face of the earth. He was telling them that, be fruitful. That's, that's what we were created to do. One of the many purposes that He created us for, go and be fruitful. But after the fall of man, there is no way that we can do that on our own. It is not to be our first and primary focus to go and bear fruit. Not only is being fruitful part, you know, it's not only what we are created to do. I think it's something we want to do. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you want to be pleasing to Him and you have Him working in you and you, and you have this sense that you know that you are a dirty, sinful person and that you're only cleansed by His grace and His mercy, you want to be fruitful. You want to do things that, that, that please Him and that and brings Him honor and glory. You want your life to count. And there is nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would suggest that if you have that desire in you, it's because He's already done His work on you. If you have a desire to, to bear real fruit, if you have a desire to see His hand on you, if you look inside yourself and want to see real love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and you want to see those things evident in yourself, and if you want to see your life count, and you want to see your, your life being used to, to spread the gospel and share His truth with others, and you want to see good deeds done to people who are hurting, you want to see those things to honor God, I would say that's evidence of His work in you. That's the fruit. But you're never called to go and do that on your own. He says, abide in Me. That's our focus. That's our call. What happens when you abide in Him? You bear 
fruit. You see, abiding, abiding, it's the path by which God works His work in us and through us. It's to be our focus. It's to be that thing that we're driven to. To, to being close to Christ. To, to living in, in relationship that's close to Him. Chasing after Him alone. Knowing all the while that He is going to bear His fruit in you and through you. Abide in me. Abiding, it comes with great benefit. It doesn't just, it's not just that, that, that God does this thing and, and it just stands off to the side and says, okay, you abide in Him and you're never even going to notice the results. It comes with great benefit. You want to know what the benefits of abiding in Christ are? He's working in you. He's going to bear His fruit in you. That's the first and foremost thing that we see here. When you abide in Christ, the very first thing He says is, I'm going to bear fruit in you. I'm going to shape you. I'm going to grow you. And I'm going to make you into a very fruitful person. Abide in Christ. What else does he say about abiding? He says, when you abide in me, I will answer your prayers. I'll give you the desires of your heart. I'll give you what you want. Now, here, hear, hear me. It doesn't mean that you can sit down and say, well, let's see. All right, I need uh, $50,000 to start this business. And, and to, to really start this business, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be dealing with a high-class group of people. So I'm going to have to buy a BMW. Oh, man. And, and, you know, I'll be on the road a lot, so... I'm going to have to have my laptop, my iPad, and my iPhone so that I can always stay connected, so I can always get in touch with people. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to have a nice house because if I live in the right neighborhood, I'll, I'll be able to network with the right people. So we, I don't want you to go asking God for these things. I don't think He's promising you these things. I don't think that's what He's saying. Hey, abide in me. And I'll give you what you want. Abide in me and I'll do what you ask. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying at all. Psalm 37, I think it's Psalm 37 verse 4. There's a, there's a passage that is so misused. In fact, half of it's never even mentioned. The Lord wants to give you the desires of your heart. But you know what? That's only the second half of that verse. The first half says, delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. You know what happens when you delight yourself in the Lord? The $50,000, the BMW, the laptop, the iPad, the iPhone. They may be tools that you can have and enjoy. And don't hear me saying it's bad to have them. I'm not picking on you guys with the iPhones. It's not bad to have those things. It's just that they, they become less the desire of your heart than being who God meant you to be, who He created you to be. In fact, I think that Jesus is saying the exact same thing in this passage. Abide in me. Chase after me. Make me the central focus of all that you do. Abide in me. And I will answer your prayers. It's the benefit of abiding. You see, when your life and your heart is so full of Him, you're going to ask for things that please Him and honor Him and glorify Him when He is the central thing in your life. How much money you make becomes less important because you know that He's going to provide. You'll find a contentment that doesn't demand that you have the BMW, but that you can sit and enjoy His presence. He may bless you with the BMW, but it's not necessarily the thing that you're asking for. 
You see, that's what it's, that's, that's the benefit of abiding. Because you begin to recognize his heart. You begin to see what, what pleases him and honors him. And it begins to be that thing that drives you and motivates you to movement and to action. And abiding, it comes with an assurance of salvation. Listen to what he says. He says it. He says, he says, <clears throat> Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. When you abide in Christ, you will see His work evident in your life. And if you're not, you might ask yourself if you're abiding. When you see His work in your life, and you can recognize His supernatural hand on you, you can know that He saved you, and that He's keeping you safe. That He's continuing to work. And He's continuing to prune, to purge, or to cleanse. He's continuing to take away those things of the world that they will be replaced by the things of Him and they will be fruit. So how do we abide? How do we abide? Abide. Over and over Jesus says this. Abide, abide, abide. The Greek word is, is we translate it abide, would be minnow. And, and really it means to, to, to continue in, to dwell in, or to endure. You know, it has a sense of perseverance with it. The, the sense of, of just continuing on and never stopping it. And always, 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 always being the same. Dwelling in something. It's not so much about a set of circumstances. It's not so much about, uh, about what's going on in your life around you. It's more about enduring in a relationship, continuing on in a relationship, abiding in a relationship. You see, I don't think we understand this so much today. I think that our culture is so, is so sporadic that, that we don't understand what it is to abide. If, if I, if I receive a resume, I look at resumes quite a lot. I do the, the hiring and firing at my work. If I look at a resume and I see just over and over and over, just, just one right after another, a person just moving on every three or four months, they're just moving on, just moving on, just moving on. It tells me that person has a lack of commitment or is always looking for the greener grass or has some issue. But you know, it's not a strange thing to see a resume that may be three or four pages with a person who is working steadily at a job and they change jobs to move up or make more money or whatever they do. That's a normal thing in our corporate America. It's normal to work at a business for four or five years and to, to plan to move on. It used to be that people would get a job and expect to be there for a long, long time. It doesn't happen so much anymore. When we used to buy houses, in fact, I, I can remember my, my um, I, I want to say my grandmother, you correct me if my, my great-grandmother, Lived in the same house all her life until she was moved in with her parents. Is that right? With her daughter. I'm sorry, not her parents. Her parents were dead and gone. Her daughter was still alive. But she lived, that's, that's, you bought a house and it was yours and you lived there. See, now we buy houses as investment properties and, and really a house, buying a house for a lot of people 
is it's, it's just a way to step up to the next house. And when you buy that house, I'm going to be there three or four years. I'm going to turn that house, and I'm going to, after with the equity in it, I'm going to buy the next step bigger house. And I'm going to be there for three or four or five years, and I'm I'm going to do a little work on it maybe, and I'm going to I'm going to make it a little more valuable, and I'm going to sell that house, and with the equity I have in it, I'm going to buy a little bit bigger house. You see, that's what we do. In fact, I would say that we don't even dwell in our houses the way that Christ is saying that we should be abiding in Him. Now, I sometimes wonder what my neighbors think because we come and go and we come and go all day long. I mean, in the morning we get up and we go to work. We come home and there's usually something at church. So we leave, we leave the house and we go somewhere else. And then sometimes even after that's over, we'll come home and we'll end up leaving again. Sometimes I think we bought that house not to live in it, to just have a place to sleep. And I wonder what our neighbors think. Our garage door goes up and down all day long. I just don't, there's no telling. But I see, I don't even think he's saying abide in me like we live in our houses today. We're too busy. We're on the go. See, what I think he's talking about, what I think he's saying in abiding in him, as, he, as he's using these words, dwell in, continue in, you know, endure, I think we're to abide in him kind of like we abide in our skin. Now, I want you to imagine your life without your skin. Kind of grotesque and painful, I think. I think that's the same picture or understanding that we should have as we think about Christ and our life without Him. See, as believers, He told His disciples, He said this, you're already clean because of the work I've done in you. Now, abide in me. As believers, I think every day, we've talked about this recently, every day we can go out into the world and we can abide in Christ or we can live for our flesh. And I think that Jesus Christ is telling His disciples and now telling us every day we should go out, we should go out covered up in Him. And if we don't, in everything we do and in every place we go, if we're not wearing Him as our covering, we should feel as painful and as and, and as out of touch as if we had removed our skin, as if somebody had stripped it off. Maybe physically you're not going to hurt that bad. But spiritually, we should be able to sense the difference. We should be able to know the difference. You see, we're to put on Christ. We're to abide in Him. He is to be on us everywhere we go. He is to be a part of everything we do. We should be covered up in Him, wrapped up in Him, abiding, living closely with Him. Brother Lawrence, and, and I'm not... I've never read the, the book. I've seen different quotes out of it. I've seen different things from it. But Brother Lawrence um, wrote this in his book, Practicing the Presence of God. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. Brother Lawrence, he was a 17th century monk who in all that he did, he was a, he was a kitchen attendant in a monastery pretty lowly work, pretty simple stuff. But in all that he did, he sought to, to practice God's presence in his everyday life, in all that he did. He also writes this, men invent ways, or I'm sorry, men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. 
Yet it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly, completely, he's saying, wholly for the love of Him? Now, because of his religious viewpoints, doctrinally, we're not going to agree with everything he says. But I can tell you this, is that those statements, at least, should be an attitude that every one of us walk into our world with every day. I go to my job abiding in Christ, standing in His presence, walking with Him as I speak to my employees or to the to my employer, depending on Him as I deal with customers, waiting on Him to see His provision of business. I, I, I walk into my, into my life every day as I deal with my family and I'm called to abide in Christ, knowing that He's with me, trusting in Him, acting in a way that pleases and honors Him as if He is my own skin. I don't have to invent all of these things to do. I don't have to decide all of these different ways that I can dream up to go and honor Christ. I can wake up in the morning and I can commit the day to Him. And the people that I talk with, I can pray for. And the, and the opportunities that I have to say a good word for Him, I can say it. And as I'm sitting and it's quiet and no one's pestering and bugging me, I can be praying and speaking about the adoration that I have for Christ in my heart. And, and, and I can be asking for His guidance and depending on His presence in every step of every day in all that we do. This can be our life. In fact, I think as we see, this is the life that Christ is calling His disciples to. Not to go out and chase the fruit, but to abide in Him. Abide in Him. Dwell in Him. Beyond the meaning of the word, I, th I think the, the text gives us some other clues as well. In verse 9, it says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. See, He tells him first, that as, as, as my Father has loved me, so I have loved you. I, we, we stopped and thought about this last week. I think it's something you got to stop and think about over and over again. As God the Father has loved God the Son. What, what kind of love do you think that the Father has for His Son? Think about it. That's the way that He's loved us. Abide in that. Dwell in that. Think on that. Let it move you. Let it, let it soak into you. And, and, and then he says, this is how you're going to do it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You see, I don't think that we have to understand Jesus here saying that here's the condition of my love for you. You go out and you do good and you keep my commandments. Then I'll love you. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. I, I think that that totally flies in the face of all that he's teaching. In fact, he says, I've proved my love for you. No greater love has any man than this that he lay his life down for his friends. You see, his love is proved. We never have to question it. We never have to wonder. We never have to, to, to be in doubt about it. Jesus loves His people. Boom. That's it. There's no more discussion. It's proved. Now He says, abide in that love. 
How do you abide in that love? How do you experience that love to the fullness of it? How do you, how do you know that it's real? How, how do you sense it? How do you, how do you feel it? You live in obedience to His commands. You, you live in such a way that you do the things He tells you to do. What did He tell us to do? How do I know His commands? I, I want to abide in that love. I want to sense it. I want to abide in Christ. How do I, do I abide in His commands? How do I, or how, how do I follow His commands? How, how do I get to that point where I'm doing that? You have to know them. You have to know them. How am I going to know them? You're going to read His Word. It pushes us right back to the very beginning of what He teaches. Already you are clean because of the Word that I have spoken to you. You see, He'd been teaching these disciples. He'd been talking to them. And in, in, in the power of His Word, the power of this message... It was transforming them. It was cleansing them. It was knocking off the dirt and the debris that we pick up in the world. It was making them whole. We need to know His Word in the same way. Psalms 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The law that he's referring to is God's word, his commands for us. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in, in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff in the wind that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We dwell in Him. We abide in Him. We experience Him as we learn and hear His Word. So, you know, before you pick up books like the Total Church that we're studying, that we're reading through, before you pick up books by people like N.T. Wright and, and his, and his the, the Resurrection of the Son of God, I think the name of it is. I wrote it down. Let me find it. Before you, before you pick up Grudem's Systematic Theology or Mark Driscoll's Doctrine or, or um, The Reason for God by Tim Keller, it's back there. Before you pick up Vintage Jesus and begin to read that, let me tell you to pick up, challenge you to pick up the Word of God. You see, these men, they, they, they are doing what they can to demonstrate truth. And, and those are good books only insofar as they bring truth to light. This, this, the Bible, is all that truly matters more, or, well, it, to us. <laughs> Let me say it like this before I go making claims that, that I maybe shouldn't. It's not all that matters. Jesus Christ matters. The Holy Spirit matters. God the Father matters. But for us, this is the tangible, physical connection that we have to Him. And it's through His Word, the Scriptures, our Bible, that we hear Him speak, that He cleanses us, that He tells us truth, that He changes our minds about who He is and what He does. You see, our minds by themselves are antagonistic towards Him. By His Word, He changes that. 
You see, I, I wouldn't encourage you to, to, to never read books. We read books. I, I want you to read books by solid dudes and solid, solid women that, that are, are, are expounding on truth, that are bringing truth to light. I want you to read those books. But I want you to read this first. Because how will you know if they're leading you rightly if you don't know what He says first? Scripture teaches us, test all things. Hold on to that which is good. How do we know what's good unless we know how to measure it? We need His Word. There are so many other ways that we could talk about. These are the things that that abiding in Him as they're illustrated in this passage, knowing His Word, reading His Word, dwelling in it, meditating on it, obeying His commands, recognizing His presence in our everyday life, recognizing that, that in all that we do, in all that we are, everything, every place we are, we're called to glorify Him. There's many disciplines, prayer and meditation, Many disciplines that, that will help us abide in Him, walk in Him. We need to practice them. They need to be an everyday, constant part of our life. Sometimes it will be difficult to pray because things will be so hectic and so hard. But as soon as it's quiet, find yourself praying. Have you ever found yourself that way? Have you ever been walking along? And sometimes sometimes this is, a I don't know, maybe it's weird. I, I don't know, I hope it's not. Sometimes I'll wake up and there's already a song in my head. And, and you know what's strange is that sometimes I'll be sitting and watching something that I know I probably shouldn't be watching. And I'll find myself praying. It's shocking, really. Does that ever happen? We, we need to be seeking to abide in Him. To recognize that He is there with us. In fact, let me just say this one last thing about abiding. In closing. I had to decide if I was done or not. Sorry, the questioning look, I know. Let me say one last thing about abiding. In closing. Abiding is a two-way street. He says, abide in me and I will abide in you. You see, this is what it's all about. It's us last standing every day and living in that relationship with Him. Our Jesus Christ, our Savior, the, the, the God who loved us enough to come, put on our flesh, and dwell among us. As we abide in Him, He abides in us. It's a two-way street. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, You are so good to send Your Son so gracious to, to overlook our sin, to, to call us just and righteous because of the work that He did. 